the salesman. Hello, Ben. You are very successful. It was a day with the sun shining and the birds singing, and it was warm and fair. Nonetheless, the kids weren't allowed to play down near the bend in the river. It just wasn't considered safe. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, such a pleasure to be with you. An old lady determined to bring a ghost to life, a child with such power over his focus, he can light things on fire with nothing but his eyes. A young girl so shy she almost gets trapped by enemies. What do these things all have in common? Well, they all appear in today's episode of The Appleseed Stories from Bonnie Greenberg, from Andy Offit Irwin, from Nora Dooley, and more. And to introduce us to the first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Trent Horton, one of our assistant producers. Trent, it's great to have you with me. Hey, it's good to be here. This story that we're going to hear now, this Bonnie Greenberg tale, has an interesting title, doesn't it? It does. That's actually the first thing that caught my attention. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about this story. Yeah, so it's called Devoleb, and what caught my attention was <clears throat> when you spell it backwards, it's beloved. <gasps> and so I I don't know, I guess my brain just flipped it. And so I was curious about what, uh, why it was called that, yeah. and I gave it a listen. And it turned out to be kind of a very David versus Goliath type story, mm. which I always love. I love hearing about the boastful big man who's never been taken down, you know, lose <laughs> his first fight. And uh, I don't remember who I was talking to, but at one point I had a discussion with somebody about how, you know, we as people, we love underdog stories. We sure do, don't we? Yes. Yeah. Like, you just, if you look at any of the famous stories, you know, Cinderella, it's a little bit of an underdog story. That's one of the most popular <laughs> stories in the world um, are most, most well-known, I guess. Yeah. But uh, we just love, you know, seeing that that person beat the odds. And we do. We do, don't we? We hope that we can do the same in our lives. We Absolutely. see all these big challenges in front of us, and, and we have hopes that we can, you know, surmount the, the obstacles that face us. And these, uh, these underdog stories really give us a lot of hope, don't they? Oh, yeah, for yeah. sure. So that that's kind of what I loved about about this story, and that's why I wanted to bring it. The story is Devoleb by Bonnie Greenberg, and of course you're going to find out in the story that Devoleb is beloved backwards, just as Trent said. Here's the story. Happy to bring it to you here on the Apple Seed. I'm tiny but strong, hear me sing my song. I'm bold, I'm brave, you can count on me. Just wait, you will see, my people I'll save. That was Devolop. Did you hear him? They say if you stand right here, under the trees where he sang and he played, that you can still hear him singing that song. Devolub was a hero in our kingdom, and when I grow up, I want to be just like him. My father remembers when they found Devolub. You see, it was back in the old days. Why then, our kingdom was separated from the kingdom next door by just one river. They called that the kingdom of the Gadolim, the big ones. They say the men over there stood taller than five trees and wider than three rivers. 
they say that that kingdom was going around taking over all the smaller kingdoms, and ours was the smallest of all. But no one had ever really seen them, and they'd never bothered us, so no one was sure. Nonetheless, the kids weren't allowed to play down near the bend in the river. It just wasn't considered safe. Kids had to play up near the creeks. Now my father and his friends, they had built a hideout down near the river, right near the bend behind the eucalyptus trees. Why, when the sun shone on those eucalyptus leaves, you couldn't see anything behind those trees. My father and his friends, they would take their fishing poles and say, we're just going fishing down by the creek, and then they'd run to their hideout. Well, one day, they had a big surprise. They went down to the hideout, and it was smashed to smithereens. Why, where their hideout had been, there was now just one enormous footprint. Why, it was true. There were Godolim over there, and they had come over to our side. Well, my father and his friends ran back to the village to tell their families. When they got there, everyone was standing at the edge of the forest in a circle, looking down around something. My father tried to talk to his father. Papa, Papa, I have something to tell you. Not now, son. Can't you see something important is going on? Well, he looked in between all those people, and there in the middle, there was this young boy lying on the ground. Well, he'd been hurt badly. He was about seven years old, and he couldn't even move. The people stood and just stared at him. Every now and then, his eyes would flutter open, and he had the biggest, roundest, brownest eyes that anyone had ever seen. Why, they were so big and so round that they filled up the whole space where the white usually is. Well, the boy couldn't even be moved, so they made a little bed of leaves and grass around him to make him comfortable. And you know the people of my kingdom. They sat by him and took turns bringing him food. They would feed him spoonful by spoonful little bits of soup. They sat beside him and told him stories, sang him songs. But he had to lie still there for a long time. Well, after a while, he could open his eyes a little more, and it was somewhat boring lying there all the time. So he would make up some games. You know that game where you look at the clouds passing by overhead and you pretend they're different animals? Like, there goes an alligator, there goes an elephant. Well, one day, he was playing that game when a beautiful green leaf just began to float down from the tree up above. Well, Devolop gathered up all his energy into those big brown eyes of his, and he stared at that leaf until, poof, it went up in flames. Ooh, he didn't know he could do that. He began to practice that. He would practice on leaves and sticks and... 
Why, he got so good that pretty soon, with those eyes of his, he could bore a hole in a tree stump 30 yards away. But he never told anyone about that. He kept that his secret. In time, Devolop was able to sit up, and soon he could stand. And before the summer was over, he was able to play with the other children. Oh, he had long fingers, and he'd made a beautiful harp. He loved to play that. He would go out into the woods and play that beautiful harp and sing songs, and all the other children would follow along behind him. I'm tiny but strong, hear me sing my song. I'm bold, I'm brave, you can count on me. Just wait, you will see. My people, I'll save. It was one day in the late spring when all the wildflowers were in bloom that the king from the kingdom of the Godolim came into the clearing between our two kingdoms. He roared, I want to see your king. Well, our king went out to meet him. Listen, tomorrow. At 5 a.m., when the sun comes over the horizon, my armies are coming here to take your kingdom. Now, there is one thing you can do to save yourselves. I'll send out my biggest, bravest warrior, and you send out your strongest warrior, and they can do battle first. If your soldier wins... Why, we'll just turn around and go back home. If your soldier wins. <laughs> and he turned and rode back into the forests of the kingdom of the Godolim. Our king didn't know what to do. He came back to tell the people. He was wringing his hands, tearing at his hair. And all night long they argued about who they should send. Devolub stepped forward, and he said, I can do it. You? Why, Devolub, you're so little and fragile. Devolub, you've been so sick. And we love you so much. We can't send you to what's sure to be certain death. But Devolub just put his hands on his hips and said once more, I can do it. Well, soon the sun was starting to come up and someone had to be sent. And so they sent Devolub. Out from the forests of the Godolim stepped the giant warrior. Why, it was true. He stood taller than five trees and wider than three rivers, and in his hand he brandished a sword that just gleamed in the morning sun. And from our side out stepped Devolub, and there was no sword in the hand of Devolub. When the warrior saw who had been sent, he became furious. What? This is who they send to fight me, a mighty warrior. And with that, he brought his sword down across the meadow, neatly trimming off the tops of every wildflower in its path. 
he raised his sword again and moved toward Devolab. But Devolab didn't move. He just gathered all his energy into those powerful eyes and stared at the heart of the giant. Everyone held their breath as they watched the giant's sword slowly descend until it fell from his hand. And then his hands clutched at his heart, his knees buckled, and soon... He lay dead upon the ground. Well, a roar went up from the people in our kingdom. They raced out and placed Devolab on their shoulders, dancing and singing all about. The enemy turned and with their heads bent, rode back to their own land. Our people danced all day and all night around the campfires, singing songs. I'm tiny but strong, hear me sing my song. I'm bold, I'm brave, you could count on me. I did set you free, my people, I saved. A story from Bonnie Greenberg. The tale was called Devolub, and it's a story that's part of a collection of stories from Bonnie Greenberg called The Wonder Child and Other Young Heroes. We talked before the story began about how it's an underdog story, and it's even more useful, isn't it, uh, especially to young story listeners, if that hero who conquers great odds is a young hero, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we love when young people have... Uh... Victorious moments. That's right. Yeah, that's right. We all hope that we can triumph over the big things in our lives. And it was a pleasure to be filled with that hope as we listened to that tale. It even gave us a song to whistle as we walk about, right? Yes, it has been stuck in my head actually a little bit. <laughs> but, you know, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> There's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. Trent, thanks for bringing us this tale. Yeah, for sure. I'm Sam Payne. Stick around. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure to be with you on today's episode of The Appleseed. If you're just joining us a moment ago, you heard a story called Devolub, which of course is beloved, spelled backward, a story told for you by Bonnie Greenberg. Coming up, Andy Offit Irwin with an Aunt Marguerite story. We love those, but first because we know that the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you to share around the kitchen table or the living room. Here's an entry in the Radio Family Journal about a leap of faith of sorts. Here it is. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. My 14-year-old son and I had bought a couple of passes to a little mountain activity park. The park was filled with an assortment of what I guess I'd describe as mini theme park rides. There was a concrete track about half a mile long, and you'd ride down it on a plastic sled. There was a trampoline that you could jump on while strapped into a bungee cord harness for extra high flips and somersaults. There was a chairlift that would take you soaring above the park on a lazy ride. 
ride, and we wanted to try all these things together. But there was one ride about which my son was way more excited than I was. It was nothing but a tower, maybe 50 feet high. And you'd climb this tower by way of a spiral staircase. And at the top of the tower, there was a platform where they'd strap you into a harness and then you'd jump off the tower. And you'd be clipped into a, a line that would pay out of a gear system that slowed your 40-foot descent, an auto-belay, they called it, and you'd softly land on the ground. The adventure was getting yourself to jump off the tower in the first place. The ride had the rather prosaic title of The Vertical Drop. Well, my son, he hangs out with people who raft rivers and sail under parachutes. And for him, this was, well, it was kid stuff. And he wanted to try the vertical drop. Me, I'm my son's father. So I was, well, I was willing, I guess. I love my son, but I've got a thing with edges, heights, vast spaces between me and the ground. I'm an acrophobe. I'm an acrophobe of the first order. But 50 feet, come on, that's not even that high, right? So up we went, up the spiral staircase. My son fueled by the thrill of the jump, and I fueled by love for my son. My knees didn't start to go weak until I was about 30 feet up. But by the time I stood at the top of that 50-foot tower, I felt as though I looked a little pale, and I must have. My son said, Dad, you look a little pale. You're not going to chicken out, are you? Well, at this point, anything was possible. I could not in good conscience guarantee to my 14-year-old son that I wasn't going to chicken out. I stood there and I said, son, just give me a minute, right? Just give me a minute. Well, in the end, I think it was not my son's wheedling that made me strap into that harness. It was something else. As I stood there on the platform, 50 feet of open air between me and the ground, a little kid, maybe eight years old, jogged up the stairs from behind me. He was already wearing a harness when he came up the stairs, which meant that he had already jumped from the 50-foot vertical drop tower and was simply back for more. And this little kid saw me hesitating, and I'm sure that as he looked at me, he thought, this guy can't really be in line, can he? And he asked me so. Sir, are you in line to jump? He said, no kidding. He called me sir. And I said, no, no, you go on ahead. And I watched as the girl who worked the tower clipped the kid to the auto belay line. And I watched that kid jump off the edge of the platform. My son began to strap into the harness. And before he was done, the eight-year-old kid had climbed the tower again and was ready for another jump. This is ridiculous, I thought. And I watched my son clip into the auto belay harness. And he turned to me and he said, see, Dad, there's nothing to it. And he jumped backward off the edge of the tower. Well, I did it. I strapped myself in. I told the girl working the tower, just as I had told my son, that I had a thing with heights and that I wasn't going to look over the edge of the tower until it was absolutely time to jump. She got it. I was clearly not the first acrophobe she'd dealt with. Well, it was my turn. And the girl said, go for it. And I closed my eyes. No kidding. I closed my eyes and I jumped off the tower with my eyes closed. Almost immediately, the gears of the auto belay line began arresting my fall. I've since looked that ride up on the internet and they say it's a nine foot free fall before the line begins to catch you and slow you down. In reality, it felt more like 
four feet of free fall. It was nothing. The fear had all been anticipation, all of it. The actual experience was as gentle as I might imagine being lowered into a crib for a nap might be. Well, I landed on the ground and I looked at my son and it might be nice if the next thing that happened in this story is that he cheered for me, gave me a hug and said, you did it, dad. You conquered your fear and you did it. And you know, I did do it. I had somehow been able to ignore the irrational nature of the dangers I had created in my mind. And I had been able to trust the things that were in the end observably real, the sturdiness of the auto belay and the metal line to which I was attached by a reliable harness, the competence of the folks helping me strapped safely in, and the ease with which even small children were making the leap of which I was so afraid. I had done it. That's not, I should tell you, what my son said or did. He saw me land, he shook his head, and he laughed at me. And then he did say something. He said, Dad, I've never seen anyone look so scared. Well, will I do it again? I don't know. It would be a different ride now than it was then. And the truth is, I wonder if without that weak need buildup of horrifying anticipation, the vertical drop would be much fun at all. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal, a memory of a small leap for mankind, but a giant leap for me. We hope the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. Coming up, you're going to hear from Andy Offit Irwin, a great Marguerite story, and uh, you're going to hear from Nora Dooley with a story called Molly O'Donohue. But first, a conversation with a friend. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through meals that we share, through songs that are a part of our youth, through the films that we see, and of course, through the books that we read. On The Appleseed, we share a lot of stories that come down to us through the oral tradition. Of course, great stories come into our lives through the words that have been set down in print. And talking about great experiences with books is something that we love to do with friends, and I'm thrilled to be joined in the studio by a longtime friend of the Appleseed, one of our favorite storytellers, Kim Whitecamp, is with us. Kim, it's such a pleasure to have you in the studio. Hi, Sam. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> and the book that we're talking about today is the book The, the Midnight Library by Matt Haig. And certainly the, 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 the content of the pages is important, right? But it's what happens to you uh, because of that content that we're going to talk about, right? Yeah, I, I read this book not that long ago, but it had a profound effect on me and yeah. how I handle life now. Well, and set it up. Yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit about how the book is, is, is constructed. What's the book about? Well, it follows the life of a woman who, for different reasons, finds herself almost dead. Hmm. Yeah. And the premise of the book is that in between death and life, if you're not, if you're kind of in limbo, you go to a place called the Midnight Library, and in your specific library, everyone has one, hmm. there's someone from your past that meant something to you who is the librarian. Yeah. And in that library, the first thing you receive is your book of regrets. All, I mean, 
everything that you regret is yeah. in the pages of that book. As, just a as few, a just tough a library to visit. Seriously, yeah. And you can pick one of those regrets, and if you do, your librarian, you know, makes all the books move. There's thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of books on the wall. Yeah. And they spin, and the whole room shakes, and then boom, there's the shelf. And they pull it off, they hand it to you, and when you open it, you enter in to that moment when you chose to go one way, you move into what happened if you would have went the other way. <laughs> and it is it sounds fascinating. Like, yeah, it sounds like a book that gives you just endless opportunity to sort of examine your own life and experiences, yes. right? Because how many of us, because I even have in some of my stories, I talk about hindsight. Yeah, It's a little bit of a bandwagon for me because people tend to use hindsight. <laughs> I call it the hammer of hindsight. They just want to <laughs> beat themselves over the head because now they know, but you didn't know. Yeah. And... It was. It's fascinating because just about, and I hate spoiler alert here. Yeah, yeah. Almost every regret she visits has its own wealth of problems to the point that she doesn't want to stay. Sure. Yeah. But she gains insight as to why some people did things and how what she did affected others. Yeah. And sees some of the true nature of some of the people that she thought otherwise of. And what happened is my husband and I actually listened to it on a trip. We had a long drive. Yeah. And we did an audible book with it. But I it affected me so much that I made a extreme heavy conscious decision that moving forward I will never regret anything I decide to hmm. do even if I hear I should have done different because even if someone says well you should have cuz guess what happened it still wasn't lived, and if it would have been lived, if I would have made that decision, it would have had its own issues because I'm faulty. Sure. People yeah. are faulty. Life is life. Sickness is sickness, whatever. And so even if I hear, well, you should have because guess what happened? I'm still not going to let it bother me anymore. Huh. And it, I've held to that since I read that book, oh, I'd say, five months ago. You know, as you talk about that, I think, yeah, there's a what, – what, what strikes me is the notion that so often we say – if only I had. If only I'd have taken another path. That that other path would have been smooth, right? Nope. And there's a naivete <laughs> about that, isn't there? Because you talk about all. You talk about some of the factors, our own foibles and tendencies, and you know whatever path we take is gonna be to some degree rocky. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And you know it may be that if you would have took that path, there would have been greater reward at the end than what path you chose. Yeah. But if you dwell on that, you'll lose the joys in the path you're on. Yeah. Even if they're small, small joys can heal profound wounds and it can feed you. Small joys can – listen, if you give me a plate of beans and they're all separated and I eat them one at a time, they're going to give me the same protein as if you pile them in a tall pile that looks – Right. Yeah. And I yeah. scoop them up at once. Right. So we we it just it really affected me and it's changed my life. Hmm. And that's a lot for me because it takes a lot to move this <laughs> to redheaded <change>. kid <laughs> to change me. But it was just like this very solid shift. Yeah. In in the the foundation of me that I'm just not going to regret things. One of the things that I love about your telling of the story of discovering the book right, is hearing you talk about having discovered it together, ha having discovered it together with your husband. Um, I, I think there, it's so useful 
you know, to have discovered together the images and language that now you can use to talk about some of these things, you know. You <laughs> want to know something so funny, Sam, <laughs> as you're saying that? When it ended, right, we were in the car, and I just said, I was saying, wow, wow, that was deep. Like, that really affected me. And my husband, I went on for a while, and he, I said, what did you think? And he goes, it was different. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, you know, to each their own, right? That's he enjoyed right. it, but he's like, it was different. It was and different. there I am having a whole life change, right? <laughs> but I'm going to tell you, when you let go of having regrets of things in the past, yeah, it allows you to then, when you make decisions as they come, to make them more assuredly if you know yeah. you're not going to regret anything. Hmm. If you set yourself up in your mind, your heart, your spirit to say, I will not regret any decision I make. I mean, obviously, we're not talking about criminal behavior here. Sure, sure. But it allows you to move more boldly into decisions. Yeah. You know, so. Well, it's amazing that a single book can, that that's the testament to the power of books, right? Absolutely. Is that they can, Stories. They, yeah, they can change you in that way. Kim, such a pleasure to chat about The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. Kim, uh, great to talk about it with you. Thanks, Kim. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with Kim Whitecamp. We'll have her back for sure. Lots coming up on The Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you here on The Appleseed. A moment ago, a conversation with Kim Whitecamp. A pleasure to have her in the studio with us. And coming up now, a story from Andy Offutt Irwin, who has thrilled audiences all over the country for years and years with stories about his fictional Aunt Marguerite, who, as an octogenarian, went back to school for a medical degree. This story is called Marguerite and the Phantom Janitor. We're happy to bring it to you on The Appleseed. Uh, my Aunt Marguerite loves practical jokes. Here are the rules for practical jokes. There's etiquette, real etiquette. First of all, you don't hurt anybody's feelings so they can't show themselves in polite company. You don't hurt individual groups that can be looked at as inferior to another group. That's very important. The best practical jokes mess with a huge population of people. And the best practical jokes have a lifetime consequence. (laughs) And that's why my favorite practical jokes are when we create undeniable ghosts. Those are the best practical jokes. So she likes to create jokes, or she wanted me to create a series of jokes with, with undeniable ghosts. And it began when I was like a sophomore in college. Now, my Uncle Charles had gone to Georgia Tech. Anybody familiar with Georgia Tech? You ever heard of it? Okay, clap if you have, because this is an audio recording. Thank you. You guys work with me, see? We can't see you if this is a record and we're listening to it in our cars. So I don't pay you to sit around and look pretty and be hot. You got to work. But uh, Georgia Tech, um, my, where my Uncle Charles went, and that's, uh, that's Marguerite's um, deceased husband, um, they created a, a, a character named George P. Burdell. And um, George P. Burdell more than once got um, a, a master's in engineering. <laughs> he did not exist. 
And, uh, it be, he, and now the bookstore at Georgia Tech is called George P. Burdell's. Um, but he's a, he's a character that sort of haunts Georgia Tech in a fun kind of way, and everybody knows who he is. But yes, he read, really got a degree before computers when you could get away with that. And you, of course, you have, to have a, a, you have to have a university with really bright students who will take tests when they don't have to. Well, I went to Georgia College in Milledgeville. <laughs> My sophomore year, when I became a sophomore, my Aunt Margaret said, are you going to have some friends coming over to visit you for Christmas? And she knew that I would probably do that because my mom was, and I will tell you, this is the truth, I'll brag on that, my mom was the coolest mom of all my friends' moms. Uh, she would put up with anything. If you showed up at her door, she would feed you. She'd give you a place to stay. So Marguerite knew that I would be bringing some friends home for Christmas because, you know, we wanted to do stuff. And she also knew that it took a whole year of college to establish who your friends were going to be. You have to weed out some people and become really close. And by the time Christmas comes around, your sophomore year, that group of people that you're starting to hang out with, they're going to be your friends for life. They are, if you're, if you're doing it right, and they are. And um, so she said, I want you to bring all your friends over to my house. I want to serve them tea. <laughs> I said, that would be lovely. <laughs> now, that wasn't so hard to say now, was it? <laughs> so I did. At Christmas break, we, we went over to her house, and, and she had candles lit instead of regular lighting and she had the the good china and everything she said and she was very cryptic she said i want all of you to sit because i have a quest for you well my friends had never met marguerite <laughs> and she was being very mysterious now i want you all to join hands and repeat after me I, I, your name, your name. don't. <laughs> don't be smart. <laughs> Swear or affirm. To create, to create an undeniable ghost, an undeniable ghost at, Georgia at Georgia College. Beware, Beware of taking oaths. <laughs> now go. We walked out, my friends are going. I like your aunt. <laughs> she scares me. <laughs> well, we, we talked about it. How are we going to create an undeniable ghost? And, and man said, you know, I think we'll figure it out. It will come to us. Let us embrace serendipity. <laughs> and I think all of us could do that. We could all embrace serendipity. And, and, it, and it came to pass that uh, we were all in the theater. We were all theater students. And... Um, did all the plays on campus, and you know, I crammed four years of college into six years. <laughs> because I shot a lot of pool and I did a lot of theater. 
And, and I wasn't a theater major or anything close to it. Um, but but we, we noticed that now our, our theater is called Russell Hall. I don't know if they still have this anymore, but Russell Hall was equipped with Carolines. In fact, um, um, Dr. Noah had been this great old music teacher, and he uh, was a pipe organist, so uh, Russell Hall had a pipe organ, big old pipe organ, and it's no longer there. But he also had installed a carillon system where there are little bells, there are actual little chimes inside this, uh, looks like a, a two-manual um, organ console, and it played from the roof, almost like if you had, you know, real, real carillons. But these were fake little carillons. Uh, I'm gonna mess with uh, I'm gonna mess with church people again. Methodist churches and Baptist churches are notorious about this. Um, they in the 50s and 60s installed these things, and it might be you. And if it is, and, that, and if you're offended, that's tough. Um, <laughs> but they they a lot of these things are on the roofs of churches. And at lunchtime, you decided that you need to play that music for us. You know, on our way from work to go and get a subway sandwich. <laughs> They're never quite, quite in tune, and that's supposed to bring us to Jesus. So, um, <laughs> but still, it's, it's, it's a quaint thing that little towns do. And well, there were, these things were on top of, 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 the, uh, of the, the theater, and uh, it played Westminster chimes every 30 minutes. <laughs> but there was one speaker. That was the North Speaker. They, these are like not very good speakers. They're like the football horns, you know, the old-fashioned football, you know, stadium speakers. But the one on the north side was blown, so... <laughs> well, we had noticed that backstage, every time that thing went off, there was a box. And the, the box was about three feet tall and two feet wide and eight inches deep. And we heard this clicking sound in that box. Well... <clears throat> Old Mr. Jenkins um, was one of the custodians of our college, and uh, there were steam pipes that went through. We had steam heat even in, this, in the 70s and 80s on this campus. And um, when we did a play, we needed to turn the steam heat off in the theater because it'd go, kang, 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 and you're trying to do, you know, death of a salesman. Hello, Ben, you're very successful. Bang, 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 you know. I just... <laughs> We would turn the heat off at about 7.20 for an 8 o'clock show, and uh, the audience would be cold, but it would be quiet, and everybody would cuddle up and snuggle. And um, it, was, it was fine, because, you know, you guys understand being in an audience with adverse temperature issues. <laughs> so we would, we would, and so Mr. Jenkins, we said, Mr. Jenkins, uh, um, Dr. Blair says that we need to get the keys to turn off the heat, and he'd go, all right, here you go. Well, when you're a college student, and you're, you're trying to pull off some practical jokes and an old, old fellow gives you keys. <laughs> you might fail to return them until he asks, which may never happen. He may not remember what became of them, and he didn't. And we did two practical jokes with those keys. The first thing, we noticed there was a small key. We heard this box click every time the carillons went off. Man, Martin, um, he said, I believe... That's what controls the carillons. They go click, click, click when the carillons go off. We said, wow, you are a man of science. <laughs> so we opened it up, and it was sort of a piano roll mechanism. And then we found some other tunes besides Westminster Chimes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
nobody, nobody had changed these piano rolls since Max Noah had retired. And Max Noah had retired back in the early 60s. This was beautiful. So we, we, took, out, we took out Westminster Chimes for 2.30 in the morning, and we replaced it with Roll Out the Barrel. <laughs> And then we created, we created this German professor. We created this Dr. Bach, the maniacal German professor from the 1920s. And this was before the internet, so you couldn't just look it up and nobody you know, had the foresight or the energy to go to the library to actually look it up. <laughs> we created this Dr. Bach, this German professor who, who loved Bavarian folk songs. <laughs> and then we decided that he's haunting the buildings, and we would say, Dr. Bach, they say you could hear him the other night saying things like schnell. <laughs> when we did, we, we, we changed out Westminster Chimes for Roll Out the Barrel, and at 2.30, 2.30 is the, just the perfect time. There, there are a few people still awake. Most people are asleep. Some people have been asleep only a few minutes, so it, it kind of gets into their, their brains. And they... <laughs> from the north side. <laughs> click, click, click. We took it down. We replaced it with Westminster Chimes, made sure the clock was set. We used to, you, know, we had to, you have to shut down the thing to change the rolls, and then you have to reset the clock. And we did all that. It was beautiful. And we went away. And then at breakfast, we were going, did you guys hear anything last night? Yeah, man, that was this weird song from the bells. Yes, I think it was Roll Out the Barrel. That was Dr. Bach. <laughs> and to this day, there are people who believe that it was him. <laughs> and then we became this character. Our name of our little club became the Phantom Janitor. <laughs> and we had keys, and we had the ability to open certain doors. And some of the doors we could actually card. And, um, and before fall classes, when I was a senior, the first time I was a senior. <laughs> you guys are cruel. Uh, we, uh, we changed all the numbers over the biggest classroom uh, building, all the numbers over all the doors, and switched the restroom signs. And each time we did this, we would go and visit Marguerite. We would call, I would call her and say, Our, my, you know, the Phantom Janitor is going to pay you a call. Very good. <laughs> we would sit before her on the floor in a circle. And, Tell me of your adventures. <laughs> we told her about Dr. Bach. Oh yes, I am so proud. <laughs> We told her about the classroom doors. Well, that is lovely. <laughs> we told her that freshmen had been wandering around for six months going, I don't know where to go. That's <laughs> we told her we had switched the restroom signs. Well, that's just vulgar. <laughs>
Marguerite and the Phantom Janitor, one of Andy Offutt Irwin's terrific Marguerite stories about his fictional great aunt who, as an octogenarian, went back to school for a medical degree. We're going to wrap up today with a story called Molly O'Donohue from Nora Dooley. And Molly O'Donohue is a shy person in this story. She wouldn't sing, she wouldn't dance, she wouldn't tell stories, she'd just hide. That's all fine until she had to journey to Dublin City all on her own. Here's Nora Dooley with Molly O'Donohue on the Appleseed. A long time ago, high in the Wicklow Mountains, lived a girl named Molly O'Donohue. She was a clever girl, but her cleverness was not in her words, no, for she was so shy, she was knee-knocking, bone-shattering, she was palm-sweating, stuttering, shy. And she couldn't say boo to a goose, though I never did know why you'd want to. But she was clever, did I not say that? And her cleverness was in her hands, for with a knife and a block of wood, she could make the most fantastic toys, and these she would sell once a year down in Dublin City. Yes, she would leave her old ma up in the Wicklow Mountains, and she would travel down to Dublin City all the way down, and she'd stay overnight with her cousins because it was such a long journey. Now, there was a problem with this staying overnight and having dinner with her cousins, and the problem was that there's this custom you see in Ireland that Wherever you are, if you have dinner with someone, afterwards everyone shares a bit of entertainment. You see, even if you're young or old or whatever, everyone either plays a bit of music, sings a song, tells a joke or a story, does some recitation, does a bit of a dance, everybody but not our Molly. She was that shy that every time she had dinner with her cousins, when dinner was over, she'd say, oh, I feel sick, and then she'd run upstairs and she would hide her head under the bolster and stay there until the morning came. Well, it happened that it was her time to go down to Dublin City to sell her toys, and her ma packed her a delicious lunch, a huge bannock of bread, a big slab of cheese, a nice jug of milk, and six of her favourite cookies, oatmeal. And... Molly packed these in one bag and all her toys in another, and slung both over her shoulders with her cloak on, she went off to Dublin City. Now, it was a fine day that she set off on. It was a day with the sun shining and the birds singing, and it was warm and fair, such as you rarely see in Ireland. And our Molly walked quite a long ways, and she decided to take a rest. And she sat down to eat her entire lunch. She ate the whole thing at once. And having gone such a long way, in such a short time, she decided she could take a bit of a nap after lunch. So she fell asleep by the side of the road on a nice warm flat rock. But she woke up with raindrops falling into her eyes. And she sat up and looked and she could see that the sun had gone down behind those Wicklow Mountains and soon it would be dark and the rain was coming up strong and hard. Oh dear, she thought to herself, there's nothing for it but I must keep walking on to Dublin City for I'm too far away from home to turn back. So she started walking through the rain but then it started to thunder, ba-boom! And our Molly hated thunder and then lightning lit the sky and she could see in that flash of lightning that there was a small cottage by the side of the road and she was coming close upon it. She thought to herself, I don't remember any cottage in this part of the road, but there was another flash of lightning and another crack of thunder. And she thought to herself, maybe I can find some shelter from this storm there. And she went right up and knocked on the door. And the door creaked 
creaked open, and Mally looked inside on a cottage that was neat and clean and warm and inviting. There in front of a bright and lively peat fire sat an old, old woman. She had smiling blue eyes and wrinkles everywhere on her face. Her hair was a white dollop of cream tied up in a little bun, and she said, Welcome to you, Molly O'Donoghue. Come in and warm yourself, girl. Well, Molly had never met this woman before. In fact, she'd never seen the cottage nor the woman ever in her life. She wondered how she knew her name, but with the wind and the rain to the back of her and the warm fire to the front of her, Molly went in and closed the door, and she hung up her two bags in her cloak and warmed herself in front of the fire. She warmed herself front and back, and the old woman simply smiled as Molly made herself comfortable and was finely dry. When she was dry, the old woman said, Well, now, Molly, now that you're dry and happy, let's have some dinner. And the woman clapped her hands twice. And from another room floated a table, and on that table was every good thing to eat. There was a roast of meat, there was gravy, there were biscuits, there were baked potatoes. There was a big jug of cider. The two of them said their grace and then fell to. They ate and ate and ate till they could eat no more. When they were finished, the old woman clapped her hands twice and the dishes and table disappeared and they sat back and the old woman stretched her legs and said, Now, Molly, after dinner, it's a little bit of entertainment that I'm wanting. You don't happen to have a flute or a fiddle in your bags, do you? And Molly said, oh, no, not I. The old woman said, well, that's fine then, girl. Perhaps you'd like to do some dancing for me, for I can play the spoons and make a rare rhythm for you. Oh, oh no, don't dance, said Molly. Well, then, that's all one. How about the singing? Are you good for the singing? Perhaps you'd like to sing me a song. Molly said, no, don't. Well, then, well, then, said the old woman, that's fine. But, you know, perhaps you'll tell me a story then, because everyone has a story. And Molly said, eh, not me, don't. Can't, won't. And the old woman said, Excuse me, Molly O'Donoghue, am I hearing you correctly? Are you saying to me that after the hospitality that I've shown you, you're not even going to tell me a story? Um, can't, don't, won't. Yes, no, I mean, yes, no, said Molly. Well then, out with you, Molly O'Donoghue, said the old woman, and she clapped her hands twice. And Molly felt herself lifted up and propelled toward the door, which creaked open, and Molly and her two bags and her cloak were thrown out into the night, and the door, poof, shut behind her. Oh, dear, says Molly, here I am in the dark of the night, and I'm near destroyed with the fear of it. But there's nothing for me to do but walk on to Dublin, is there? So she starts walking down the dark and lonely road, and she hears behind her a pony cart, clip-clop, 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 and it's coming closer and closer, and she thinks to herself, ah, maybe I can get a ride with them that's on the pony cart. Maybe, maybe I can have some company on this dark road to Dublin, because you never know who could be out on a night like this and at this time. And then she thinks to herself, in fact, I don't know who's on the pony cart. In fact, perhaps I should hide by the side of the road and see what they look like first. And so she jumped off the side of the road, and she was hiding behind some bushes when the pony cart got closer, clip-clop clip-clop, 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 and stopped right in front of where she was hiding. Molly pushed aside the bushes and looked out. There were two men on that pony cart. One was really tall, and he had a long pointy nose and a long pointy chin and a big Adam's apple, and it looked like they were on a race off of his very face. 
Now, the other fellow was as short as he was round, and he had absolutely no hair on his head, except for the hair which grew on his eyebrows, out of his nose and out of his ears. And he had pointy little teeth in a small little mouth and a voice that sounded like this. Now, who will help us with our burden? says the short fellow to the big tall fellow. And the tall fellow says, um, who, who, uh, I don't know, who's going to help us? Molly O'Donoghue, that's who, says the short fella. She's hiding right there in the bushes. And the two of them jump down off of the cart and they pull Molly right out of the bushes and bring her around to the back of the cart. And the short fella says, Molly, help us carry this box. Well, Molly looks at this huge box. It's, it's covered with padlocks and leather thongs, and it's very, very heavy. Yet she puts it on her shoulder, and the two men lead her into the fields, and they walk across one stone wall and another field and another stone wall, and then they come to a very lonely place. And the big tall feller takes a spade out from underneath his cloak, and the short feller says, Dig a hole, Molly. Dig a hole as wide as you are long and as deep as you are tall as you value your life. And Molly starts digging. Choom, choom, choom. And the two fellas are just standing there looking at her. And she digs and digs and digs until she's throwing the dirt up over her head. And she climbs out of that hole. And the short fella says, well now, who <laughs> knows where we've buried our treasure? And the tall fella says, ah, I do. I know, I know where we're burying it, and, um, and, and, uh, you know, and, uh, uh, and, uh, Valley O'Donoghue, that's who, says the short fella, and who shall we bury with our treasure, he says. But does Molly wait for the answer to that? She does not. She jumps right over that hole and she starts running as fast as her little feet can carry her, hopping and running as fast as she can. Well, the big tall fella tries to follow her too, but he falls in the hole and the short fella runs around it on his little fat legs and he says, You stop, Molly, I'll catch you, you scamp. You can't escape me. I'm off to you, I am. But Molly, she runs over one wall and across another field and over the next wall till she gets to the road. She looks this way, she looks that. She sees a square of yellow light down the road. Maybe that's the cottage. Maybe the old woman is still up. She thinks to herself, she runs up and indeed it's the cottage and she knocks on the door and the door opens, creak, and she jumps in, boom, and shuts the door behind her. And there's the old woman sitting right there where she left her and she says, well now, Molly O'Donoghue, where have you been and what have you been doing? And Molly says, ha, ah, where have I been and what have I been doing? Wasn't I just walking down this very road myself to the road to Dublin? I was walking on it by myself in the dark of the night and I heard a pony cart and didn't I think to hide because I didn't know who was on it and that was a good idea but not good enough, was it? For they found me anyway, didn't they? And she tells the woman her whole story. And when she's finished, the old woman says to her, well now, Molly O'Donoghue, that was a fine story, and this should serve as a lesson for you. For your own story is a good enough story to tell. For if you have the courage to live it, you ought to have the courage to tell it. And after a good story, I'm for bed, says the old woman. And she clapped her hands twice. And Molly felt herself in a warm feather bed. All the lights were low, and Molly fell asleep like a leaf falls off a tree. Now the next morning, Molly woke up. And she looked round. Was she in a bed? No. Was she in a cottage? No. Was she anywhere but out on the field? Oh, my, no, she was out on the field, and her pillow had been her two bags, and her cloak had been her feather bed. She stood up and stretched. Oh, my, she looked this way and that. She couldn't see a cottage anywhere. That was some dream I had, said Molly. That was... Then she reached down for her bags. She picked up her bag of toys, and then she picked up her food bag. But wait, 
What was this? It was heavy. She looked inside. Oh, my goodness. There were baked potatoes in there from the night before. Oh, this money, that is strange, that is. And she threw the two bags over her shoulders and she went into Dublin City. And that night, when she had dinner with her cousins, did she run up and hide under the bolster after dinner? Certainly she did not. She told this story to her cousins, who told it to my cousins, and I just told it to you. It's the story of Molly O'Donoghue. Molly O'Donoghue, here on The Appleseed, told for you by Nora Dooley. What a pleasure to bring you these tales today. Visit us online at byuradio.org for more, not just the hour-long episodes filled with stories for you and your family that you enjoy, but also mini-episodes. We call them Appleseed Extras, just a single story long, just a few minutes long, in case you've only got a few minutes and you want to fill them with a great tale. I'm Sam Payne. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. Can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.